If this is your first time joining us, my name's Matt. I'm one of the pastors of the church, and this morning is our final installment of the Shepherd King series. We've been working through 1 and 2 Samuel, and today is our final day. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, no problem. There's probably one under your chair or the chair of someone next to you. And 2 Samuel chapter 12 is on page 263 in those Bibles under your chairs. Just want to encourage you to follow along with us. As we always say at City Light, our final authority here is with God and his word, not me and my ideas. So we always want you following along with us uh, in the scriptures. Now, as you're getting to page 263 or 2 Samuel 12, uh, I want to say a, a quick thank you before we, we jump in. If you were here last week, you know uh, I shared that as we're moving toward the fall, and moving toward becoming one church with two congregations, both City Light here in Maniunk and City Light Center City, we have some volunteer needs on our, on our Sunday teams. And last week I shared specifically like the refreshments team that does the coffee and everything. I was like, yeah, we need some volunteers. And I just want to thank you guys because uh, you responded like you always do. Just incredible generosity incredible ownership of the church that is your church. And so I think we've already added like six new people to the refreshments team and like a dozen of you signed up to serve in various ways. And I, it just blows me away every time just what a godly, self-giving church that you are. So thank you so much for that. If you're interested in being part of literally the hundreds of people that help make Sunday mornings possible throughout the year, we would love to get you more information about that. So all you've got to do on your Connect card is check serve, and tomorrow I'll shoot you an email with all the various ways that you can be involved with serving and being part of Sunday teams uh, here on a Sunday morning. So thank you guys so much, as always, for your hard work, your generosity, and really using your gifts as they're meant to be for the building up of this body of Christ to bring glory to God and good to one another. So with that being said, let me pray, and we will jump into 2 Samuel 4 the final time. Father, thank you for this time that we have to study the book that we love. Your holy scriptures, the Bible. Father, we thank you that all scripture is breathed out by you and profitable for training us in righteousness. And Father, I want to pray for those of us that come into this room and our week has been insane and the distractions feel loud, that they might as well be audible. Father, I pray that you would speak to us in the midst of the distractions through your word. Father, I pray for those of us who um, had just an incredible weekend and we're coming off of like sort of a mountaintop experience at the men's retreat. I pray that you would speak to us. God, for all of us, we pray that you would use your word to lift up Jesus Christ, to draw us to him and make us more like him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, uh, we had a front row view for the greatest nosedive in human history. See, as we've been studying through First and Second Samuel, we've been focused on this man, David, who's described as a man after God's own heart. And God took him from a poor shepherd to the king over all of Israel. And even more than that, he promised David that his dynasty would continue forever. And we know now that Jesus Christ himself, that it was the very son promised to David. This dude was in an incredible season and trajectory. 
But then we get to 2 Samuel 11, and it hit us like a ton of bricks. This man after God's own heart covets another man's wife. Covets Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite's wife. He sends for her to come for a meeting at the palace while Uriah's away at battle. And he seduces her. They commit adultery and Bathsheba winds up pregnant. And in an anxious fury to cover it up, David first lies to Uriah, her husband, and then murders him. And then he continues the cover-up process such that at the end of 2 Samuel 11, it seems like David may have gotten away with it. That everyone has been fooled, even though David's taken this most horrendous nosedive. But then 2 Samuel 11 closes with these words, and they kind of introduce us into the chapter we're going to look at today. The chapter closes, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Everyone may have been fooled. God is not fooled. And the question that's burning in my mind at the end of chapter 11 as we move into chapter 12 is how in the world are they going to deal with this? How are they going to deal with David's sin? This man after God's own heart, their king, who's taken this massive nosedive, how are they going to deal with it? How are they going to respond to David's sin? And actually, what I want us to do this morning together is expand that question a little bit. And then we're going to focus on it. It'll be our big idea for the morning that we're going to unpack as we look at 2 Samuel 12. And the question is this. How do we deal with sin in Jesus' family? How do we deal with sin in Jesus' family. I think this is really the big idea that 2 Samuel 12 is going to unpack. In Jesus' family, in Jesus' church, how, how do we deal with sin? Now, if you're here this morning and you're just sort of checking Christianity out, you're still on the fence, not sure that you want to follow Jesus, you, you haven't actually put your faith in him as Savior and Lord, I want you to know that what's coming is kind of like a little bit of family business. See, l- let, me, let me explain. Uh, As followers of Jesus, the core of what we believe is good news. See, Christianity is not about good advice for a better life. It's good news for a new life. And this good news, what we call the gospel, is this incredible news that the holy creator God is actually adopting sinners like you and me into his family as his children, not because of anything we can do, religion or irreligion, but because of what Jesus has done on our behalf through his life, death, and resurrection. And see, when you come to not only believe that, but wholly depend on it, you've become a Christian. You've been adopted as God's son or daughter through the true son, Jesus Christ. But the amazing thing is we're not just adopted as God's children through Christ, but we're actually reconciled to one another as family. We're brothers and sisters. See, the church is Jesus' family purchased by Jesus' blood. We're, We're a family. And so as a family, we exist for a purpose. We have a mission. And to boil it down, Jesus' family exists for Jesus. 
We exist to make much of Jesus for his renown, for his glory, to point everyone always toward him. As we say it around here, we exist to make disciples of Jesus to the glory of God. That's why this family exists. But there are times, like in any family, where the members of the family step outside of that mission. Where instead of making much of Jesus, knowing him, worshiping him, living in community with his people, and seeking to extend his grace and mercy to others, we step outside of that mission. Step outside of making much of Jesus, and the Bible calls that sin. And in every family, we experience it, but in Jesus' family particularly. And so we have to know, if we have been adopted into Jesus' family by Jesus' grace, how do we deal with sin? How do we actually deal with it when people step outside, when we step outside of the family mission? That's what we're going to focus on this morning. So if you're here and you're just checking Christianity out, um, you kind of get a front row view into how we at least try to live as a family. And you, you can let us know like how we're doing with it. But this, this is what we're going to talk about is how we seek to live as a family adopted by Jesus with God as our Father. And so the episode we'll see in how they deal with David's sin is going to show us four pictures of how we deal with sin in Jesus' family. You guys ready for it? All right, let's jump in. First and foremost, how do we deal with sin in Jesus' family? Loving, thoughtful, direct confrontation. Loving, thoughtful, direct confrontation. We'll pick it up in verse 1, 2 Samuel 12. And the Lord sent Nathan. Now, Nathan is the prophet at this time, and so as Nathan approaches David, he's essentially speaking for God. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, and what we're going to see now is sort of like a little parable, a story that Nathan is going to tell David. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. So they didn't have the same monetary system as we do, and so a rich person, like, their money was in, like, herds, okay? I prefer ours. But the poor man had nothing but one little ooh lamb. So the rich man had very many flocks. This guy has one lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Uh, by the way, for you non-animal people, this is my biblical justification for being obsessed with your pets, so just you know, deal with it. All right. Now... There came a traveler to the rich man. Okay, we've we got to stop here for a moment. In the ancient Near East, there were not like hotels everywhere. So if a traveler came to town, it was customary as a sign of hospitality not only to bring them into your home, but to also fix them like a really good meal. You, you'd give them the best. 
And it was only natural that the traveler then would come to the rich man because he had the means of providing both a space and food. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd. He wouldn't even take one out of this massive amount of flock and herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man. That's a nice way of saying he killed it and cooked it. He took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, and the man who has done this, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David's furious with this guy. Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are the man. You are the king. You could have anyone. And yet you took the one wife of a righteous warrior named Uriah. You're the man. The first way that we deal with sin in Jesus' family is loving, thoughtful, direct confrontation. I mean, look at how Nathan does this. First of all, it is loving. I mean, Nathan is risking his life here. In the last chapter, David showed himself perfectly comfortable with killing people who threatened his status. Nathan's coming to him, confronting him about this sin. He's risking his life. See, but this is what love does. Many of us, we don't like to confront other people in their sin, and we do it in the name of love. And that's true. We do it in the name of love, self-love, not love for the other person. See, Nathan is more concerned with David's well-being than his own, so he moves toward him with this loving confrontation. He speaks the truth in love. That's what love does. It doesn't rejoice at evil. Now, it's also thoughtful. You notice this? This is not some like drive-by gospeling or something like that. You know, I don't know if you guys have ever met those people who like, you don't know them, but they just randomly show up and they quote Ephesians 4 and they say like, hey, I'm just going to speak the truth and love to you here, which is usually like code for, hey, I'm about to sin against you. And then they just go on a nice little tirade about your life. That's not what happens here. Yeah, it's direct and it's, it's loving, but it's thoughtful. He's clearly prayed about this. He's concerned less with being right and more with David. And, of course, it's very direct. He doesn't apologize. He doesn't go, oh, I'm so sorry to be bringing this up, and I, I know you had a really rough day, and I know she was really pretty, and, you know, there's a lot of reasons why you did this. No, he just he comes straight out with it. Loving, thoughtful, direct confrontation. That's what we do when someone in Jesus' family steps out of Jesus' mission for the family. Yeah, I am blessed that I've actually experienced this many times from faithful brothers and sisters who have brought sin to mind. And I don't want to sugarcoat this for you guys. It has never once felt good. It never once 
in all the times that I've been confronted about my sin, even in a loving, thoughtful, direct way, it never feels good. Because at, at first, you just feel exposed. You feel outed as a sinner, as though the cross didn't already do that. You feel it. But the results, I mean, the results are what we're ultimately going for. I, I, I still remember, um, this was years ago now, Pete, who is up here uh, leading worship, he and I started City Light together. And um, this one time we were doing, this was years ago, we did a Daniel fast. I don't know if any of you have ever done this. It's a horrendous experience. We did it for a month. And um, it, 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 it was tough. And the whole purpose of it was to strip away all the distractions and actually like focus on talking to Jesus more. Um, and I did a lot of talking, just not a lot of talking to Jesus about it. And uh, so I would just subtly, no matter who we were around, you know, I'd talk about it. I, I would like, you know, I'd subtly brag because, you know, you're a pastor, so you have to do the humble brag. You know, so I'd do that or I'd complain about it. And one time I was doing a little bit of both with Pete and he looked at me straight in the eye. And I remember he just said to me, Matt, I sure am hearing a lot about this fast. And it just is all he had to say. It was thoughtful, it was direct, and it was because he loved me. He didn't want me to ruin all the benefits that could come from a month-long fast just with my own sin. It hurt. Pete's one of my best friends. I, I, I don't love being exposed as a sinner, even um, amazingly, even though it's so obvious. But that's, that's how we deal with sin in Jesus' family. Loving, thoughtful, direct confrontation. Love can be direct. That's what love does. Now, before we move on to the second way that we deal with sin in Jesus' family, let me just emphasize that this is how we deal with sin in Jesus' family. Okay, that means we respond when someone has transgressed God's law, not when they've transgressed my law. We get this confused sometimes. Loving, thoughtful, direct confrontation is appropriate when someone has sinned against God, not when they violated your preferences or failed to recognize your sovereignty over whatever particular situation you're ticked off about. So this is loving, direct confrontation when it comes to breaking God's law, not your law. And we have to differentiate the two. Now, secondly, how do we deal with sin in Jesus' family? It's loving, direct, thoughtful confrontation that focuses on the heart. That's the second thing. It focuses on the heart. We're going to pick this up in verse 9. This is still God speaking through the prophet Nathan. He says, why have you, and this is a key word, despised? You're going to see this word emphasized by repetition. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Skip to verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. I just think that's interesting that the word of the Lord and the Lord himself are just put together as synonymous realities. Despising the Lord, despising the Lord's words, same thing. But this word despised is repeated twice, and it reveals that Nathan is a bit more concerned about David's heart than his behavior. Notice he doesn't primarily focus on all the outward sins that David has committed. He's more concerned, like, dude, I'm concerned about your heart. Because a heart that despises the Lord, it's going to give rise to all sorts of junk. So even if you say you're sorry for this adultery, what about this heart that despises the Lord that gave rise to this? 
You see, Nathan was keenly aware of something as Christians we really have to sink our teeth into. And it's this. We never break one of God's commands without breaking the first command. We never break one of God's commands without first breaking the first command, to love God with all of who we are and to have no other gods beside him. You see, every outward sin, Jesus tells us, flows from the heart, a heart that in the moment of sin despises the Lord. Now, this is insanely practical for a a few reasons. The, The first one is this. This knowing that we're to focus on the heart changes the way we speak to someone or respond to them either when they confess sin to us or we are coming to them with their sin. Let me explain. Um, I'll I'll just be honest in case I'm the only sinner in this room. I have have a tendency at times with being a little mouthy with my wife, okay? So this little, like, sarcastic wit thing uh, doesn't go over real well at home all the time, okay? And this is a temptation that at times I, I really do struggle with. I can be a little mouthy. But the way you respond to that if we're focusing on the heart, probably should not be immediately stop it. Now, let me say, if you have young children, stop it first is perfectly appropriate, and then the later explanation of the why, but with adults, brothers and sisters in Christ, stop it is not first. Neither is giving good advice. You ever had this where you confess a sin to someone and the immediate thing they do is turn it around and talk about themselves? Oh, I struggled with that once. And here's what I did, and here's how it worked out. And you're like, okay, you've given me good advice for a better life, but I need good news for, like, new life. So how, how, do, how we respond, see, when we focus on the heart, our response should probably be questions that get at the heart. Like, if I'm getting mouthy with my wife, you should say to me, not first stop it, but what is it, Matt, that you are loving right now? What are you treasuring? What are you depending on that isn't God such that it makes it seem logical to you right now to speak that way instead of insane, which is what all sin is? See, when we're focused on the heart, we respond to sins by looking at the heart, looking at the breaking of the first commandment. What are you really loving right now that isn't God, that makes it seem, this sin seem to make sense instead of seeming insane, which it is? Now, the second reason focusing on the heart is, is so practical is because it helps us beyond our tendency to only confront really big sins, right? So often it's like, let it go, let it go, let it go, and then it blows up, and then you're like, well, now I need to say something. But if we're focused on the heart, then we don't have to wait for the big sins because we know any, every sin outwardly that's big or small is flowing from a heart that in that moment is despising God so we can address the heart. Now, the third reason this is so practical is because when you're focused on someone's heart, you will, over time, become more and more wise to know whether now is a time to speak the truth in love or overlook an offense. See, those are both perfectly appropriate biblical categories for responding when someone sins against you. I can speak the truth in love, 
Or I can overlook an offense because love covers over a multitude of sins. And when you're focused on the heart, then you're able to discern like, man, is, is this really something that's like deep in the heart that I need to talk about? Or was this just like, okay, it was a little outward thing and yeah, it was a sin, but I can't confront literally every sin, please don't, that you commit, so I have to be discerning here. Speak the truth in love or love covers over a multitude of sins, I can overlook it. Focusing on the heart helps us with this. So the way that we deal with sin in Jesus' family, first and foremost, is loving, thoughtful, direct confrontation that focuses on the heart. Now, this is really different than how most of us respond to sin, right? Your spouse sins against you, your children sin against you, uh, a coworker sins against you, your roommate you know, just can't figure out how to wash a dish, and you know, they're just sinning against you. What, what's most of our tendency? It's one of two things. It's either blow up or shut up. That's most of us. Blow up or shut up, and they both flow from self-love. I blow up at you in or, because, you know, anger is just a grasp at control. Or I close my mouth because I'm so concerned about what you might think of me that I can't speak. See, but the gospel frees us for loving, thoughtful, direct confrontation that focuses on the heart. Why are you despising the Lord in your heart? And it's giving rise to this. Now, the next two ways we respond to sin shift from the confronter to the confronted. So the third way we deal with sin is through confession and repentance. Confession and repentance, and they're not the same thing. Nathan has read David the riot act, and now it's David's turn to respond. And I just love it. Six beautiful, simple words. Verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. I love it. You notice there's no inner lawyer rising up and giving some great defense. There's no like, dude, this is none of your business, and I'm the king, and you're a prophet. No threatening, no underhanded response, no passive aggression. I have sinned against the Lord you're part of Jesus' family because you've been purchased by Jesus' grace, I just want to urge you. When confronted with sin, let go of the defenses. Like I said before, hasn't the cross already outed all of us as sinners? Already outed the deficiency of our own righteousness such that we probably shouldn't be overly confident that we're always in the right when confronted by someone? We should meet this confrontation with humble confession, which I think starts with asking God, would you convict me of any sin that is being displayed here? Like, God, is anything in this true? Even the tiniest shred of it, even if they didn't get it totally right, is there any truth in this? And if there's even a shred of it, confession. I have sinned against the Lord. Confession is essentially agreeing with the Holy Spirit and Holy Scripture about our sin. That's what confession is. It's agreeing with God about our sin, about what we've done. Now, David's confession does not exonerate him from massive consequences. Nathan has come to speak a word of judgment to him as well. He says, David, you're, you're going to live. 
the Lord has forgiven your sin even though you deserve to die, but this child that's been conceived is going to die. And David immediately goes into a season of fasting and prayer. He's on the ground weeping, fasting, as a sign of contrition over his sin and also a desire for God to relent on the judgment. And God doesn't. Confession of sin does not mean that there will be no consequences of it. And the consequences were massive and severe for David. But the way that David responds when he receives the news that his child has passed away, it reveals a movement from just confession, agreeing with God about my sin, to actual repentance. Take a look at verse 20. They've just told him that your child is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself. He's been fasting and changed his clothes. He's been on the ground. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. His own child has been taken from him and he wants more than ever a reconciled relationship with God. He wants to know God. He wants to worship Him. Notice he doesn't go and eat. He wants God more than he wants food. David's repenting. He's agreed with God about his sin, but repentance is when we actually turn from our sin to God in obedience out of love. Repentance is a turning from our sin to God in obedience out of love. David's turning back to God. See, we haven't truly dealt with our sin simply by agreeing with God that what we've done is sin. We have to turn from it to God in faith again. And that's what, what David does. You know, I, uh, one, of the, one of the blessings of about a zillion of getting to be your pastor is that you guys are very encouraging to me. Um, some of you know I can be like um, a little emotional, not like I, not so much that I cry so much, but like I wake up on Monday morning and just like feel like the sky is falling again, you know, or whatever. And a lot of you, you're like super encouraging. And after I preach, very often you're just like, hey, you know, that, that was great or whatever, whether it was or not, it is encouraging nonetheless. Um, and it's awesome. But one of the things that so, some people say, and, and I'm not trying to get on you for, for saying this, I actually really appreciate it, but it reveals a little something. I'll, I'll often hear, Thanks for that sermon, Matt. That was really convicting. You know, I, that was not the goal. You know, what this passage reveals in the way we deal with sin is that conviction's not the goal. It's not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. In his letter to another family, another one of Jesus' families, uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 says, I don't rejoice that my teaching grieved you. I rejoice because it grieved you into repenting. The goal is not, man, I feel bad. That guy got me again. No, the goal is I see my sin and I now want to turn from it because Jesus is better. I want to follow him. In Jesus' family, we deal with sin by responding first, yeah, with conviction, then confession, but ultimately through repentance. And until we've turned from our sin to God in steps of obedience, 
We haven't really repented. We've probably just felt bad. And then finally, we deal with sin in Jesus' family through what I would call uh, redemption. Redemption. David has been comforted by God. He sinned grievously, my goodness. And it all flowed out of the same place all of our sins do, a heart that despised God in the moment. And yet he turns then from the sin to God. God doesn't relent the judgment, but still, I want to know you. I want to worship you. I want to follow you. And he experiences the comfort that only God can give to a sinner. He experiences grace and mercy and forgiveness and a renewed relationship with God. And now notice what happens next. Verse 24. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah. That's Hebrew for beloved of the Lord. Because of the Lord. In Jesus' family, we don't simply repent and receive comfort from God for ourselves. No, God comforts us in all our affliction so that we can comfort those in any affliction with the same comfort that God has given. And so when we find ourselves in sin, yes, loving, thoughtful, direct confrontation that focuses at the heart, and then we respond through confession and turning from it in repentance. But the beauty of Jesus' family is that then we get to extend grace and mercy and comfort to one another. We get to point people to the God who comforts us, the God who forgives sins, the God who says there's now no condemnation for you in Christ. And that's why we have to really know one another. That's why we're always talking about city groups, because we want you to live as family together throughout the week and know one another well enough that you can extend the comfort you receive. So if you're not yet a part of one, I'd love to get you more information about that. You can just check that out on your Connect card. One last thought. I imagine that if you're at all cynical, like I can be sometimes, you look at this picture of how Jesus' family deals with sin and you go, dude, that looks really unrealistic. It looks really unrealistic. I mean, blowing up and shutting up, yeah, I dig that. This whole like loving direct confrontation that focuses at the heart, met with confession and repentance where there's redemption and comfort and all this stuff, it seems wildly unrealistic. And apart from the gospel, it is. And that's... We, we have to always then come back full circle to the gospel. This good news that God is adopting as his sons and daughters religious and irreligious sinners. Not because anything that we can do, but because of what Jesus has done through his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. And I'll tell you what happens when you start to truly believe that gospel and go deeper and deeper into it. As God's adopted child, other people's approval of you becomes secondary because in Christ you're approved of by God and so you're free to speak, even confront sin because you're primarily concerned about others because God's freed you from all the self-concern. 
The gospel empowers this. Similarly, you can focus on the heart because you know, according to the gospel, how deep your heart's sin goes and yet God has forgiven you. You can respond with humble confession and repentance rather than like, you know, a lawyer's tirade because in the gospel, God has shown you, yeah, you are a sinner and you're a sinner saved by grace, more beloved than you could ever imagine so you can be humble. There's nothing like the gospel to sever the roots of pride. All of what he has done and none of what we can. And then we can comfort one another in light of the gospel because we're continually living out this confession and repentance such that God comforts us constantly. So is it unrealistic? Yes. It's insanely unrealistic. And there enters the gospel. That's good news for a new life and a new family, not good advice for how you can be a better you. So it's the gospel and the gospel alone that empowers Jesus' people to live like family.